Panic Room is a thrill ride that all takes place in a single New York brownstone, where the heroes and villains are locked in a battle of wits. After his previous films, this was David Fincher's attempt at a popcorn movie, so let's see how it turned out. Welcome everyone to The Collector's Cut, I am Peter and joining me as always is David. Say the F word. No, we're on YouTube, David. That'll get us demonetized or some shit. Uh, oh, no. I like how I immediately said shit, which is, yeah, exactly. is, is less is less severe mm-hmm. as is noted on YouTube, as well as most uh, you know rating schemes for for content. But anyway, welcome everyone. This is a movie podcast. Uh, we are working through the films of David Fincher, um, kind of to celebrate the fact that sometime next month we'll have his new release, and we'll do that uh, when it comes out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have so far done seven. Uh, for Patreon, we did The Game, last week we did Fight Club, and now this episode, we're looking at Panic Room from 2002. Yes. Uh, AKA, by far, the most notable film he made, and the one that everyone always remembers. That sounded like a little... There was an edge to that, David. You've been a bit sarky, been a bit... What? No. I didn't mm. sit through two hours of this movie just waiting for it to end. What are you talking about? <laughs> Oh dear. Well, uh, we'll get to our thoughts, although I feel like David is uh, playing his hand a little bit early mm. here. Um, so yes, the, the basic premise of this, and we'll start spoiler-free as we always do, we'll give you a warning before we get into spoilers, but the basic premise is that Jodie Foster plays this newly divorced mum uh, with her young teen daughter, played by Kristen Stewart. They move into a big brownstone house in New York, and... They've got a panic room, right, as the title would imply. And on their first night there, some thieves break in looking for money they believe to be hidden in the house from the previous owner. And it becomes this sort of cat and mouse game where they're hiding in the panic room and these criminals on the outside. And it's, you know, it's a thriller. It's a popcorn thriller. That is the, the basic gist of it. So yep. uh, we'll get into all those things. Now, can I... Uh, so before you say anything else, can I just add, mm. had you seen this before? Was this a first time viewing? I remember trying to start it at one point, but I don't think I even made it into the panic room. I don't think they even introduced it. I was out within like five minutes for whatever reason. So effectively, no, I have never seen this movie. Okay. Okay. Good to know. I have seen this. I saw this probably a few times. You know, it was something that played on the movie channels a bit back in the uh, sort of early 2000s after it came out. Hmm. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll get into all the things. But oh yeah, we'll just we'll just k- kick things off with with the basic thoughts, which David seems to be coming in hot here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. David, what did you think of Panic Room? I think this movie has a fantastic concept, and that's about it. I also oh. think that I think David Fincher got new tech where he is able to do that opening sequence from fight club where we just trace the camera really long distances and he decided he wanted to make a whole movie just doing that regardless of if he had an actual plot to it so for me i think that this movie like i said good concept i think that it had some cool little the best way i could describe as you said before is cat and mouse aspects you have one group that plans to do something and then another group has to rapidly react and it's interesting to see how they come in conflict with each other again concept a plus there but i cannot find a reason for this movie to be as long as it is and it's not very long it's under two hours but it is 
it just feels so dragged out. It feels like everything is dragged out beyond the point where it makes sense for tension and just starts becoming annoying. And then my final thing, without going into spoilers, is I think this third act falls flat on its face. I don't think it wraps up satisfyingly at all. So, yeah, not too happy with it overall. Okay. That, that was a lot of hot taken. Um, yeah. I quite like this movie. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, that's fair. I like this more than Fight Club. and the, okay. the comic, I mean, also the game, but no one cares if I say that. <laughs> no, no one cares about the game. No one cares about that. Um, which is not to say that I think this movie has as much to say as Fight Club, of course. Fight Club's got a lot more, you know, subtext, mm. a lot more going on in it. Um, but I think this is a very good example of a single location movie. And when I was just sort of, I wasn't even looking for like facts or like trivia or anything. I just, I happened to find when I was looking up something about the movie, the Fincher intentionally wanted to do a movie set in one location because Fight Club had like 200 locations or something stupid like that. <laughs> so mm, yeah. he, he wanted to make something that was confined. He still had production problems and we'll talk about, uh, there's one big notable thing that we do have to discuss about the movie's uh, creation. But, okay. um, I I like a mo- I like a bottle movie. I like a movie, uh, especially a thriller that's set in one location. Um, I actually do think the 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 runtime is just just fine for it. I, I think okay. I think the it's interesting because the villains are the ones who are having to do the problem solving. But it's these types of movies where I like. It's usually the protagonist, admittedly. In this case, it's mostly mm-hmm. the villains. Although the protagonists eventually do it as well. Is that it's okay? There's a set of rules. We have to figure out how to like solve the problem given these rules that we've been given and those rules are simply we we want to get into the panic room i don't think it's much of a spoiler to say the thing they want is unfortunately in the panic room so they want to get in the panic room and they can't because it's built to not be you know breakable yeah (laughs) it's it's solid steel the, the villains are handed an impenetrable box and say get inside yeah so it's all about them trying to figure out a way to solve that problem and then when they do something that will affect the characters on the inside how they then try to solve the problem to like counteract it and whatever mm-hmm. and i have fun with all that i think it's a really fun uh, i agree david fincher agreed or agreed david fincher uh said he wanted to do a popcorn thriller and that's the phrase i use because i think that's exactly the description i'd use for this it is mm-hmm. a popcorn thriller with a solid cast and fun sequences now that doesn't mean to say that i don't have any critiques either i do think the visual style of the movie i'll agree with the cg transitions where you know the camera like goes through walls and stuff like that is a bit iffy um i also think that i don't know if it was shot on like digital hd video or not but it has that look to it where the blacks are very crushed and kind of noisy but not in the Mm. way that film grain looks it looks at times kind of ugly but not because the cinematography is bad but just because the type of recording you know instruments they're using gives it a certain look that i don't necessarily always like it's especially not i especially felt it early on actually when there was daytime scenes because it felt like those looked too but like too dark and too grimy for what they were yeah. um it's like it's going too far into that fincher like smeared in dark green kind of puke yellow vibe so mm-hmm. I do I do think there's things to critique. Um I will agree that there's one element of like the ending that I do think is maybe a little unsatisfying, but for the most part, um I think it, it does the right things by having, you know, your different you know, you've got a more sympathetic villain, you've got a villain who's more of like a dangerous wild card and is like the real threat. 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, you've got the jeopardy of like, okay, she has to keep her daughter safe, but she has to take risks to do that. She has to take risks to try and call for help. So, so on, and so on. So, yeah, I think all that's super fun. Um, so, I thought it flew in, to be honest, when I watched this uh, this morning. So, and that's fair. I, I definitely see the appeal of it. I, I get all that, and I 100% agree that I enjoy the sequences. I enjoy the smaller bits of here is them trying to get into the room here is how they fight back against that and back and forth because it's clever it is clever but i enjoy it more in concept than i do in the way they actually execute it it constantly feels like every single one of those sequences for me could have a good minute and a half trimmed from it every single time (laughs) if not more and i think that it just pads out a little bit too long and then in terms of characters, I enjoy pretty much everybody here. I think this movie was casted great. Uh, you're saying like the wild card. The wild card dude is played by Jared Leto. That's no, 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 like no, no. perfect no. casting. He's oh, you the, think the other one's the wild card? The, the ski mash dudes, the, I'd call him the wild card. Although I think Jared Leto was perfectly cast. I agree with that statement mm-hmm. because he is playing the idiot who's in over his head. And <laughs> that is, that is the most I've ever accepted him in a movie role in my life is this. Yep. He's got cornrows in his hair. Come on. Oh, yeah. No, he's awful. And then, of course, the more um, <laughs> nicer one, I, I, the one who's more sympathetic yes. is Force Whitaker, who, of course, is more known for his heroic roles. So it made sense that he was a bit more likable big, in this. He's a bit cuddly giant. You know, he's yeah. he, Forrest Whitaker will take care of you. That's what it feels like. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so you get that vibe from him. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's well cast. I, I like the single location. I like that it, it really sets out what the geography of the the house is so you understand yes. the floors you understand that the panic room's on the second floor the top floor has got other bedrooms so you understand where everyone is when things kick off and how like mm-hmm. much you know that you understand the elevators there it really sets up the geography and you understand how long it takes for someone to get from the stairs to the panic room and that's mm-hmm. used a few times um I, I also really think it does a great job of doing that because the opening of this movie is quite literally a realtor showing them around the house yeah yeah. and that is just that is such a smart way to set up the geography of here's how everything is related to each other you can he's literally walking you through it it's and good. explaining everything because yeah. that's his job it's natural exposition it feels mm-hmm. very natural to have this guy saying this um and it's almost like frustrating to watch because because the kids are preoccupied, especially Jodie Foster as they're being shown, she's not like she's kind of like ignoring them and not paying attention. And you, mm-hmm. I think, as the audience, you're like, no, pay attention because this is probably going to be very important when you're trying to survive in like ten minutes. Oh yeah, you absolutely. Know? So you, you kind of like get frustrated with the character, and in a, in a healthy kind of way, where where you're like, hey, this is important. So mm-hmm. you know, I, there's yeah, I a point very early on in this movie where they, they make a point of saying that the door to the panic room will not shut because it's got like an elevator sort of sensor to it where if something's in the way of yeah, these it's, two it's, lasers it's visual yeah you see there's you see this green laser it's about uh, you know eye level and there's another mm-hmm. one about sort of like thigh or shin level i'd, I'd maybe say yeah um, and he makes the point of saying like ah yes there's one at this height and this height so that way the door won't close if anything's in it i'm like that leaves a lot of room for stuff to still be in it if there's only two lasers going on and then of course that's setting up something that happens later on in the film yeah but i actually think that's quite smart because it's very plausible that the thing that happens later still happens it's just you know because it it very clearly defines again what the rules of this thing are like this is a mechanic we've introduced it and we've stated Mm -hmm. clearly how it works and nothing later betrays that uh so yeah yeah. no it does a great job of setting up its rules i'm not gonna argue that point at all 
So, no, I have, I have a lot of fun with Panic Room. It's this one that I remembered enjoying. I hadn't seen it in a long time because for a long time, for whatever reason, this took ages to get any kind of HD release. I, I believe there is a 4K Blu-ray now, although on iTunes where I watched it, it was only in HD. But I, for a long time when I was collecting Blu-rays back when everything was sort of slowly turning HD and getting their HD remasters and whatnot, this for some reason was kind of lingering and it took a while and maybe it is because of the, the the shooting style and whatever they used to shoot it maybe it was more difficult yeah, to, to remaster or something i don't know um so but re- regardless uh it's I, th- I think the cinematography itself is quite good it's just the mm. you know the medium of which they have chosen to shoot it on uh, i do think looks a bit ugly sometimes with how it compresses the dark spaces and you get these kind of uh, it's entirely possible. Maybe the 4K version completely fixes this by just having yeah, such maybe. an insane bit rate that it doesn't have that problem. But mm. I feel like it's just, and in the same way that film grains inherent to the image and it should be there, I feel like what I'm seeing in this is probably always going to be there on some level because it's just part of right. the the technology and that's how just they how they shot it, is. it back then. Yeah. Um, for me, the only like I said, the the criticisms I have, I think it looked fine. I don't think there was any real flaw except as we said those transition bits with the cgi he loves to um, play around with that in experiment especially in this time period even the opening mm-hmm. title sequence which are these giant um yeah i mean obviously the text i mean not if you go far back enough but typically text is usually technically cg because it's just text from a computer yeah. but these are these big three-dimensional letters that are up against buildings in manhattan and Honestly, sometimes they were kind of hard to read, and I felt like, uh, like you're showing off here, and it just doesn't feel quite. I mean, good. it's 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 the way that we introduce any location in the TV show Fringe. Like, it's just that. But the, I guess this was newer back then. This was something that they really that, wanted to show a, off of compositing. This was about nine years, well, seven or eight years before Fringe. Yeah, but I feel but like it, Fringe had them with a bit of color, though, so you could always read them. I feel like this white, right. even though they had like a bit of a shading on it it still depended on what building and what text was against the building some mm-hmm. parts of the words were actually quite difficult to, to you had to really look at them and pay attention and if you have to pay that yeah. much attention it, it you know it should be easier to read i mean i think uh, while i get it that they're doing the opening credits in a more interesting way than just black like flat text on a screen as long as i can read panic room i think that that's mission accomplished mm. i feel like you get the concept of okay, this text is the actors' names. It's not really necessary to be able to read them for the sake of the movie, you know. Oh sure, it's just a. I, I think what would have been better is to have the regular names be more traditional, just coming up on the screen, but have the title be the one that's fancy mm. and like is in the sky and up against the building. Um, that would work. But but it, I think it, I, it, I feel like. No, go ahead. I was going to say, it's almost like, oh, we're going to spend the rest of the movie confined in this one house, this one mm. brownstone. So we're going to just, like, get every, like, here, enjoy all this open space in the sky, because you're not going to see it for the rest of the movie. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of what I was going to get at, is that it feels like this and also the CGI transitions are both interesting tools, new things that David Fincher was like, hey, we can play with this. But it doesn't feel like they really tie into what the movie's trying to do it doesn't feel like it's giving the sense of confinement or giving this idea of being trapped especially the cgi transitions which i don't even know if we fully explained yet in this review basically his whole thing is he just does a oneer via cgi where he 
moves about the house, like through various household objects that obviously a camera couldn't fit through, and even phasing through floors, but it's all pretending to be one continuous shot. Yeah, so it's real in parts, but there's obviously the CG bits to transition and, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, Right. I think, I understand that more. The opening titles, I completely agree. It feels like it doesn't fit like because the whole the rest of the movie is this confined movie so it's mm-hmm. weird that the openings like hey all these big letters in the sky with all this open space it does feel kind of contradictory almost in tone yeah. uh whereas at least the transitions i understand that he's still sort of playing with the geography of the building at least he's still trying to like make it clear hey two floors under them that's where these guys are right now he's almost i think it's unnecessary i think the movie does a good job explaining yeah. the geography anyway you don't need this but you know, obviously, this was just a sort of thing, like, he clearly liked to experiment with this, because he already did it in Fight Club. Fight Club had a few right. of them, you know, with the, the going out of the van, with the bomb, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, he was already toying with that in his previous movie, and here he just wanted to go further with it and, like, really push the limits. And I'm not sure where he sort of said, you know what, this is, like, I'm over this now. It may, yeah. it may literally be the next movie we do, which is Zodiac. Uh, where he's done, I don't remember it in Zodiac, but it's been a Neither while. do I, yeah. Uh, so maybe this was just like a, a 1992-2002 little kick he was on. Yeah. But see, for me, I feel like it goes against the theming of the movie. You want to feel trapped. You want to feel like you are stuck in this place. But then you're given this camera that is able to literally phase through floors and could just go anywhere at once in this building. I feel like it kind okay. of goes against that idea of you're stuck here and you can't leave. I get, what, I get what you're saying. I think the logic behind it is that you're showing where the barriers are. The fact that the camera can go through right. doesn't mean the characters can, obviously. So, I think that it's used very well during the first major time they use it, which is when the villains of the movie come to break into the house. It yeah, specifically it, it, tracks it, them walking around yeah. the house. It's showing you them try to like all do, do all the different points of entry, and eventually mm-hmm. Forrest Whitaker is the one that's able to get in an upstairs place. But Yeah. I think yeah. that that's done very well in both a theming and a uh, sense of like giving us the information that we need in the movie. Because at this point, they're not confined yet. It is still this free-flowing, they could be anywhere in the house. But once they get into the panic room and it's supposed to give this sense of claustrophobia, I just feel like it should have stopped. And instead they keep on doing it every, like, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes for a while. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fair. I, I don't love them, certainly, because they don't look very good, uh, mm. by and large, when they happen. Um, some look better than others, depending on what the transition elements are. You know, it just kind of varies. Uh, right. there, are, there are some that I think are okay. I won't give the context for spoilers, but there is one where the camera kind of comes out through a little pipe to reveal kind of like the, the exterior mm. on a wall. And I think that one looks all right, because it's kind of showing just how little it is in the context of the wall, and it's it, that's important for the scene. Well, see, but I also think that you're saying it comes out, it shows the exterior of the wall. That gives that sense of being able to move again. That's being able to not be confined in this place. I think that that works for there because that is the same sort of theme that it's going for. Yeah, because it's, it's an exit. I see what you're saying. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think I have a problem with the thematic thing that you do which is i, I, I don't necessarily feel that the the um, the camera moving around here f- makes it feel like it's less confined per se i just don't think it looks very good <laughs> um, no that's fair so, if we both dislike it for different reasons that's yeah, fine yeah uh, so i mean I'm, at that point we're kind of uh you know an impasse or whatever but uh, yeah so yeah i mean as far as anything else before we get into things we should probably talk a little bit about so I, i'll go down the cast but also talk about the 
the recasting that happened in this because I, I I was looking up things and I was like, okay. oh, some of this I I remember vaguely hearing about and some of it I did not know. Uh, this so, one I this is one of the few I haven't really looked up much on mainly because I didn't care to. So this is all news to me. So. Fincher was determined to have a, a nice straightforward production that was all in one big set that he could control, but there were still problems. So I don't remember how much they shot of it. I think maybe that was something like a week or two. They, they shot like a, you know, a good chunk of of movie over a couple okay. of weeks with the original star. That original star was Nicole Kidman. Oh. Um, and the reason why she left, it wasn't some, dark, you know, she didn't have a fallen out with Fincher or the studio or anything like that. She was injured, uh, so there she had like a fracture or something that was kind of lingering from Moulin Rouge, and it like her ankle or whatever properly went uh, whilst they were shooting Panic Room, and it was like, oh, she's going to be she can't come back and f- like shoot anything for for months, like she's going to be out of commission for a while. Wow. Okay. Uh, so they basically, uh, according to Wikipedia, they kept shooting scenes that didn't have the mother or daughter in them, so they just shot the the, the villain stuff as best mm-hmm. they could without. And then eventually they went through some different options and they cast Jodie Foster, obviously, ultimately. Uh, the other bit of casting, although this didn't change after shooting, this changed before shooting began. Uh, originally, the daughter was going to be Hayden Penitary from, like, Heroes. Oh, okay. Uh, and I don't know why she dropped out before shooting started, but she was replaced, obviously, with Kristen Stewart. So that's just an interesting bit of trivia. That this was almost a Nicole Kidman-Hayden Penitary pairing. That is strange. Yeah. It's strange to think about it like that. Um mm. I think Jodie Foster obviously is a very solid actress. I, I do wonder if the movie would have been a slightly bigger hit because Nicole Kidman undoubtedly had more star power at, at this time period yeah. specifically. Yeah, I could see it. I, I mean, just picturing her doing some of the things that Jodie Foster does, it brings a different energy to the role. I, I could definitely see it getting a bigger draw because of it. Yeah, although to be fair, I actually think Jodie Foster might be better suited in a way because she feels more like... <sighs> She feels less like a like Nicole Kidman is a glamorous actress. Jodie yeah. Foster feels like a real woman, right? Nicole Kidman is a movie star. Yeah, like Jodie Foster is an actor. Yeah, exactly. people are probably like, uh, it's hard to define what I'm trying to say here. Just that Jodie Foster, when I see her looking tired in this movie and she's struggling with the fact that she's going through a divorce, I really feel that from. I really sense mm-hmm. that. When I see Nicole Kidman try to do those sort of things, I'm like, no, she's she's acting. She she's been a movie star. She's, yeah, I mean, you know. obviously there was some level of makeup done for Jodie Foster in this movie, yeah, but yeah, most yeah. of it is done to look like no, she was asleep when all of this started. She doesn't have eyeliner. She doesn't have like any of that going on. I I can't imagine Nicole Kidman not having something you know and maybe she would not maybe this would have been a role where she did look genuinely different than she normally yeah, does true, true uh but uh, bizarrely i do think jodie foster is probably the better fit although i do wonder what the nicole kidman version would have mm. been like if they actually got to finish that i mean i do want to point out here that um nicole kidman is still in the movie apparently she is the voice of the girlfriend of the divorced husband on the oh, phone. Oh, really? They give her a cameo. Yeah. That's, that's so nice. She was still around. They, they wheeled her into a, a recording booth in post-production mm-hmm. and said, hey. Maybe that was, like, required by some level of, uh, like, guild rules or something in order to get her paid. Is that, like, if you don't show up in any of the movie's final cut, you get a significantly lower amount? Whereas you gotta, like, have oh, a tiny maybe. little something to be there? I mean, I didn't want to be cynical and just thought, oh, Fincher gave her a cameo as a little nod that she was meant to be in the movie. But yeah, yeah maybe, true. maybe there is like a legal, like a little thing that did, reason they did it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, 
But yeah, so that was just an interesting bit of trivia for the for the yeah, movie. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, yeah, so Kristen Stewart's here. Uh, obviously, a good five six years before she would turn in her performance as the tragic romantic damsel that is Bella in Twilight. You say you say turn in in such negative connotation there, <laughs> as if it wasn't the performance of a lifetime. Look, when you go into class and you hand in your essay, and you know it's getting like a C minus, like you're just you're handing it in. You know, that's fair. You're, that's you're fair. not slapping it down and going whoop there it is and like doing a little dance as you back away from the, the teacher's desk, you know? Yeah. I'd, looking at her filmography, she only had one credited role before this in a movie called The Safety of Objects. That's it. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of funny. Yeah, this is only her second role, but obviously she has went on to have a career. We know who she is. Yeah. She's, she's done other things. I especially loved in the opening credits of this movie, they bill everybody before the title except for Kristen Stewart. She's one of the very <laughs> few people who comes in after the title comes up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Forrest Whitaker we mentioned, uh, Dwight Yoakam mm. plays uh, the Raul, who's the wild card character, yes. who's more mm. dangerous. And we have Jared Leto as Junior, who is useless. <laughs> and we'll talk more about that in spoilers. I mean, he is the inciting character, more or less, but yeah, he's, yeah, he's, he's useless. He's useless in the plot. Oh, to be fair, though, he did, like, I'll, I'll, I won't say them until spoilers, but he did get a couple of legit laughs out of me. Uh, oh, so. yeah, no, he, he this movie was strangely comedic at times. This movie had some strange moments where it felt like it should have been very tense, and they instead go for a comedy beat, and it's not detrimental towards the, like, tone of the movie. It feels like these are characters who are just trying to figure things out, and they're going to do some weird stuff at times. Yeah. Um, eventually, this is a really minor role, but eventually there's a a police officer played by Paul Schultz, and yeah. he, he's been in, like, he was in the fourth Rambo, and he was in other things. I just want to point out here that this is a year after he turned in a performance in the hit film Mimic 2. Uh, oh. And I only know that because we did Mimic 2 as a bonus ace episode like last month. So well, there you go. <laughs> it was fresh in my mind. It's so. it's Shulls month, I guess, here at Mild Fuzz. <laughs> yeah, why not? So, yeah, uh, that is, that, I mean, that's basically the cast that's worth mentioning. Um, yeah. Music-wise, there, there is music. It's, it's kind of understated. It kind of goes mm. under the, the radar and just sort of builds tension. It's not, there's not a lot of big themes that are playing throughout the film, by any means. No, not that I can imagine. Not even any... Um licensed music either because obviously that is something that Fincher uses in a lot of his films as licensed music but no. I don't I can't recall a single licensed song playing at all if it was it was fleeting you know maybe yeah. when the, the daughter had a radio on for a second or something like that but there was nothing yeah memorable mm. on that front so yeah uh, I, I guess we'll we'll go into the spoilers then I'll, you know, so so warning yeah. for Panic Room mm -hmm. you've, you've been warned of spoilers we'll get into everything um so the, the movie's main character, so uh, her name is Meg, right? Jodie Foster's character's name is Meg. And mm -hmm. she has just divorced her husband because the husband's decided to get a young, hot babe wife, right? So Apparently Nicole Kidman. Apparently so. Nicole Kidman, who obviously isn't actually much younger, I don't think. But, <laughs> you know, we only hear her voice, so she's playing younger yeah. here. She, she's playing 25 in this. Yep. So... Uh, basically, the movie opens straight up with her walking with her daughter and... I actually didn't know what relation this older woman had. To, I don't know if this was, like, uh, meant to be her mother or if this was just her lawyer or, like, her agent or something. <laughs> like, I don't the, know. Way th the way I read it is that this is just her real estate agent. She's in the market to buy okay. a house. She hired a real estate agent, and this okay. is her. 
That makes sense. That makes complete sense. The, the mm. reason why I thought grandmother is the way that she kind of, like, when uh, Jodie Foster is, like, too timid and doesn't want to, like, tell her daughter off for doing something, this mm. woman, like, jumps in and says, kid, no, scooter in the house. And, right. like, just snaps. And I was like, oh, that's how, that's, like, that's like grandmother's, like, stepping into, like, discipline, you know? That's what that felt like to me. That's that's fair. I, I typically think of grandmother as much more friendly, but... If well, you've got your own things you got to deal with here, Pete, that's fine. <laughs> no, so would I, really. But I'm I'm saying that in light of the parent being too mm, docile, the, the, gotcha. maybe the grandparent steps in because that's who they are. Uh, but anyway, so the, the husband was filthy rich, apparently. So she mm-hmm. can afford to but, like, buy a brownstone <laughs> in Manhattan. Was, that, this was the part I wasn't sure on. Are they? Is she just basically saying, hey buy a house for me so I can live in the area despite the fact that we're divorced? Or did she get half the money in the divorce? You know, I don't think they ever specify. They, she does hmm. say later on the idea was to live in the same area so, you know, the daughter could go, you know, easily go visit her dad, you know, whenever. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think, yeah, I don't think they ever specify. I assume she got half the money and this was yeah. a decision. Um, but yeah, maybe, maybe he is paying for this directly. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Either way, I mean, obviously they're they're amicable they're okay with each other it's mostly for the kid though it seems because they yeah are splitting custody there well i think you know the movie's not a huge character piece obviously but there is a little bit of a character arc and at the start of the movie jodie foster like we said she's too like hesitant to you know mm. tell a daughter and it's not like her daughter's doing anything too bad she's just listening to music or riding her little scooter around or you know yeah. pressing buttons she shouldn't be you know stupid little things but mm. She's too timid to say anything. She's crying in the bathtub at the pressure of like having to do this move, and she's you know very claustrophobic with the the panic room as well. She doesn't like the idea. She keeps the door of it open when she goes to bed because she doesn't like the idea of it being there. Yeah. And all of this is basically to say that she kind of like the the movie in a lot of ways is about her kind of like you know growing up here and building up her confidence and being willing yeah. to fight for her daughter and herself because it kind of feels that like she's just passively just accepting things you know that that's other women you know the agent or grandmother whoever she is mm-hmm. she basically says no you should buy this place it's really good value this is you'll never get anything like this anywhere else in new york you should buy this and she just kind of agrees ultimately by the end of the scene with the the realtor showing them around mm-hmm. but it never really feels like it's her decision and i think that's why it's important that the final scene of the movie is her and her daughter looking through the newspaper for houses and like just picking ones based on what she wants she's actually engaging in the conversation she seems to care about where they're moving whereas here she's very detached it's not much but it is a bit of an arc of like okay this is where she starts and where she ends by the the end of the story yeah i mean like i said up front i have problems with the third act i have problems Mm. with how it ends and while i i didn't initially consider this as like you said an arc of her not having an interest in where she lives to having an interest in where she lives that feels like the smallest possible arc. It's not, it's not like, much, but I mean, to be fair, that just represents how she's like her willingness to move on. That, that's right. what that's what it, that's what the arc really is. That's just how it's mm. been represented is through her, you know, ambivalence over this first move and then actually wanting to discuss this with her daughter and actually take part in it at the end. You know, because the entire first like segment of the movie is like, oh, I just ordered pizza for dinner. Maybe I should have done more. And her daughter, and that's the thing, it's not just the other woman that's like more assertive. Her daughter even says, no, F that. Like, and F yeah. that, you know, slut that he's with. Like, she says that to her mom and she's like, no, I don't say that. And she's like, no, yeah. no, no, screw him. Because like, he did this to you. And like, 
you know so it's her being willing to like i don't want to say stand up for herself necessarily but yeah no it's it's the difference between being passive and active yeah she's very passive in her own life these things are happening to her and then she over the course of the movie becomes active well, she well, makes decisions which is why it fits perfectly with the idea of the panic room because for a large point of time the the plan is to just be passive and stay in the panic room but there's necessities later on that say, oh, she has to make active choices to try and... She has to put herself in danger to, you know, save her daughter yeah. at various points, things like that. So mm. it's not like a super deep arc. Like, it's definitely nothing that I'd say is like, you know, award-winning script writing material or anything like that. But there mm. is something there. It's not completely devoid of, like, something oh, yeah, for the no, character. I don't I don't think there isn't anything. I do. I even think that um, it does a good job of arcs on at least one of the villains. Forrest oh, Whitaker, oh yeah, I think Forrest he does Whitaker. a great job. Yeah, he absolutely. If anything, he yeah. gets the most characterization in the whole movie. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You you get this, you get this great feel. Even just as soon as he appears in this movie, you get this idea of he doesn't want to do this job, but he has to. And as soon as like these obstacles start coming up, because when they get into this house on the first night, no one is supposed to be here, according to Junior. Everyone's well, supposed to be gone. Just on that point. So hmm. it turns out Junior, uh, we, I mean, we find out later that he's actually the grandson of the guy who lived here before, right? And there's yes. the lore, of the, uh, it's weird to call it lore because it's not that much, but uh, is that this guy was sick in his last few years and that's why there's an elevator installed in the house. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had a safe in his panic room with what Junior claims to be $3 million. <laughs> we later find out it's actually $22 million in, in bonds. Yeah. Uh, but he uh, basically says, no, 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 like, like no one's meant to move in for three weeks they said 14 days and Forrest Whitaker just turns and looks at us like and what world is 14 days three weeks and he's like business days and I'm like okay that's a good response to that but I've got a feeling that it's not actually business days oh no and even as soon as he says it he looks to the other guy and it's just like right it's business days and it's one of those little comedic bits that like i really enjoyed because it it doesn't remove from the tone that they're setting up at this point it doesn't remove from this tension but it is just a funny little beat well i mean i think it's important to set up okay this guy has connections only him he's the only one that really knows this money's there and he's Mm. brought in forrest whitaker who we find out is actually a he works for the security firm who installs not only alarms and stuff but panic rooms he he helps yeah. design and install these things so he's there for his expertise and he, he forrest whitaker's not expecting the third guy when this third guy shows up with a ski mask and this mm. guy never takes it up well he takes it off eventually but yeah. you know well he never takes it off in front of them like his plan is to never take it off mm-hmm. he comes in and he already seems kind of intimidating um you get the vibe immediately and it shows that he's got a gun like you know and the other two don't yeah. so it's like oh wait a minute uh so immediately yeah forrest whitaker doesn't want to do it he's like no nah, there's people here we're not putting we're not like putting people in danger and they're all mm-hmm. kind of whispering and like, no we should do it anyway and ski mask guy is like oh uh like i've got a gun that's that we can take care of them and this is all happening as jodie foster at some point wakes up to go for a piss <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's that's how this all kicks off she goes for a piss and because the first night in this new house she goes to the panic room by accident and turns on the light and she does that mm. thing which you, you don't see in movies that often where you've woke up in the middle of the night you turn on a light and you're like ah it's blinding and she's like ah and she turns around and goes to find the actual bathroom mm-hmm. and she's just lucky that she catches on the cameras in the panic room before she turns the light off yeah that you know there's people in the house and she has to 
and that's the first part of the geography really mattering because we mm. know that the daughter is asleep on the, the floor up above she has to get upstairs she has to get her daughter and get back down into the panic room and mm. that involves like because they, they they hear that she's out uh they, they're chasing her she gets into the elevator with her daughter they're going up and down and basically they're able to stop on this middle floor after they've already lured them down at the bottom and run out of the panic room but that's this whole section yep it's it's a wonderfully tense section it does a great job like you said of setting up the geography unfortunately for me as i was watching it mm-hmm. because of their bickering and stuff downstairs i already had in my mind of like wow this is a really good home alone sequel I'm it really enjoying it, this. Yeah. It kind of is, you know. Uh, and we may be doing the Home Alone's at Christmas this year, so yes, uh, this is a, a precursor uh, in many ways. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, it immediately sets up that Forrest Whitaker doesn't want to be a criminal. He's just doing this because he has money problems. He's got his own kids. He, he needs yeah. the money for some reason. Um, Jared Leto's character, Junior, he's a spoiled rich kid who just wants money. <laughs> he wants mm-hmm. what's owed to him. Yeah, it's not set up until somewhere in the second act what the actual relation is. They just kind of dodge around it for a while saying like, oh, you need me because I know where it is. He never explains how or anything like that until finally it comes up of, yeah, no, he's the grandson of this rich guy who basically was not given as much as he wanted in the will. So he's trying to steal it beforehand. Yeah, but no one knew about the safe, so... Mm-hmm. In fact, because there's a point in the middle where he just he wants to give up because it's getting too difficult. And he's like, you know mm-hmm. what? Screw it. I'll phone an anonymous tip and I'll inherit it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I'll have to split it with my cousins and stuff like that, but that's still like a cool mill. And Which, that's where all the yeah, other guys are like, I'm sorry, hold on. You have like 10 cousins. How is it still a cool mill for you? This is the thing. When he said, I'll just inherit it, before he got to the cousins thing, I was like, Wait, why didn't you just do that in the first place? Why why do this illegal activity when you could have just said, oh, I know there's money in there, we need to inherit it. And then he mentions he's got like 12 cousins and it's like, oh, it's because you don't want to split it with that many yeah. people. Okay, okay. You're being greedy. I can, you know, I can understand that. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's fair. So, <laughs> yeah. So, that, that's, so basically when they get in the room though, um, Forrest Whitaker like sort of comes to the floor that they're on. He's like, wait, tell me they didn't go in that room. And they're like, uh... Yeah, they're in the panic room. And it led to one of my laughs, actually, is downstairs at one point when Forrest Whitaker says, okay, we don't, I don't know how to get them out yet, but one of the things we should do is make sure they can't leave the rest of the house. So he goes around mm-hmm. and, like, you know, puts screws and nails into all the windows so they can't be opened. And he's going around doing this, and he walks past, like, Raul, the guy in the ski mask. So it's just I can just say, you know, Raul and Junior from this point on. Yeah. But Raul's mm-hmm. the guy in the ski mask, Junior's Jared Leto. Uh Raul's got a sledgehammer and he's just bashing up into the ceiling, right? And the way Jared Leto, like when Forrest Whitaker asks, hey, what are you guys doing? And Jared Leto's not even doing that. He's just standing watching Raul do this. He just turns and goes, we're coming in from below. And he looks so confident as he says it. He he looks like, oh, we've, we've figured this out. And Forrest Whitaker just sort of goes, even if you get through to the, the shell, it's like inches thick of steel. You won't even make a dent. And he walks over, and they keep going anyway because they're just they're yeah. too stupid to take his advice. And would you believe it? Five minutes later, when he walks past them again, and they the broke all the ceiling down, all the all the plaster and everything's gone. It's just this metal, and he's mm-hmm. hitting it with a sledgehammer, and it's just going ding, ding, ding. <laughs> like nothing's happening. Yeah, I, I I think that as much as I dislike Jared Leto as a person, yes. and I don't think that's a controversial take. I think that he no. is great 
to have in the first half of this movie before things like really need to buckle down and get extra serious. I think that he's great to have here because he does add that little bit of levity and he he's kind of the audience avatar in a lot of ways in that he makes sure he's so stupid that he makes sure to vocally explain the things <laughs> yeah. as he's figuring them out. I think that's the, what you also said there is the idea that he, cause you know, we'll get to why in a bit, but he obviously he dies halfway through. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what you said there about him hadn't levity in the first half is that I think things are tense here. You know, when they're running into the panic room and it's tense when they're trying different things throughout the first half. Mm-hmm. But I think the death of him elevates things in the next half because he's kind of the middle piece between the two extremes. You know, Forrest Whitaker's the super sympathetic guy who doesn't want to harm anyone. And mm. uh, uh, what was his face? Raul's the, the guy who seems to be willing to just shoot people in the head. Like, that's what all he wants to do. He wants to do the extreme things yeah. constantly. And the job's the job. We're going to get it done. Jared Leto's the guy in the middle who's kind of playing, you know, referee to this, right? And mm. because he's also adding the humor, by taking that away, not only is Raul murdering him halfway raising everything because no he's just straight up shooting people now he's he's getting more dangerous you're also taking away that comedy character so you're like oh we're just serious now like things are getting worse so it it does a good job of making the audience feel like oh now things are really bad like things were Mm -hmm. bad before but now they're really bad because the 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 light-hearted one who was funny occasionally is gone yeah Mm -hmm. so i think that's a good point oh yeah no for sure it's 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 very well crafted i'm I'm not going to say that all of the puzzles in this movie all of the things where we're given the rules and then people have to think about how to overcome them i think they're very well crafted every single time even in the first time of how do they get the daughter and then back down into the panic room they set up this elevator thing early on and they use its mechanics to basically dodge the villains and make their way in it's smart it's well done But I also think that each of these sequences just has a little too much fluff in them. A little like it's sometimes it's only like 10 seconds. Sometimes it's a full like three minute sub quest thing. But I just it's always a bit too long for me. So by the time it hits the end, I'm always just kind of grateful it's done rather than happy to have had the experience, you know? I mean, I can't say I felt that way with any of it. That's fair. It, yeah, it's... So, yeah, the first... Uh, you know, after the... You know, they obviously cut the phone lines and mm-hmm. stuff like that, and they've nailed all the windows shut. Well, they cut a phone line. Well, yes. I was, I, 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 later on, I'll get more specific, but, you yes. know, for, for the sake of the time being, they've cut the phone line, um, mm-hmm. which is actually one of the first things they have to address is that when the realtor was showing them around and he was showing the panic room, he's like, hey, there's a separate phone line in here, so even if someone cuts the phone lines, this one still works. You can still phone the police. But the solution to this for why they can't just call for help actually felt very believable because it's the first night they're in this house and Jodie Foster has only hooked up the main phone line. She's not set that one up yet. Um, yeah. And it's like, honestly, it's the first night. Like, if you were moving it at this place, you're like, oh, what are the chances someone's going to break in on the first night? Like, you'd probably oh, yeah. risk that. <laughs> I mean, even outside of that, like, I've moved into places and it's been a good, like, four to five days before I got Comcast to come out with internet to yeah. hook up to my place. Like, yeah, you're not going to get everything done on day one. And they even say that later on of like, no, 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 to set up that phone line, it's not just calling AT&T. You got to call the security company who then does a check, who then sends out a guy who then hooks up the phone line. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like an alarm system phone line. So it doesn't just mm-hmm. go through the phone company. Yeah, so so 
basically, they, they, they like Forrest Whitaker knows that they don't have a phone work, working in there, so they don't mm-hmm. leave, right? Because there's like a PA system, so Jodie Foster press, presses that and says, you know, get out of the house. And even here, like she's not being harsh enough, and her daughter's like, no, put in more f bombs. Like, say, yeah. <laughs> be harsher. <laughs> I mean, I I thought again, nice little levity. Yeah, it was a good scene. No, it was good. It was good. Um, the so the other big laugh for me from Leto's character came after sort of the the probably the, the big first set piece, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we see them looking in the panic room for supplies. There's like crates with like water and some basic food and stuff like that, in case you have to be in there for a while. And Forrest Whitaker gets an idea, right? Because the whole thing is, was, we can't get in there. It's impossible. We have to have them open the door. So how do we mm-hmm. do that? And his plan, when he notices that there's a gas canister outside for the barbecue or whatever it is, he's like, oh, we just gas them out. We, you know, he basically, he goes hammering in the, the, the wall. Obviously, there's a ventilation so they can breathe in there. Mm-hmm. So they just start flooding it in with a little bit of gas. Of course, Raul's a crazy man who wants to turn it up full and like, you know completely and he's like if they get not if they pass out they can't open the door never mind die (laughs) so (laughs) i love how we have the rational thinker in um why am i blinking on his name forrest whitaker's character his 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 character name is burnham which i don't think is like ever said in the movie oh no it is because uh Kristen Stewart sees it on his, like, because when he takes his jacket off, his overall says his name. Oh, that's right. And she right, calls him right. Burnham, and it's like a little moment of, like, oh, she knows who you are now. Like, she knows mm. your name. But yeah. Fair enough. Um, but yeah, Forrest Whitaker is, like, the rational one. He always thinks through it. We have Raul being the guy who, like, sticks to his guns the most. Like, he's most unwilling to change his mind the whole way through. And then you have Jared Leto, who just flip-flops. Like, you know, whoever's, like, the most recent person to talk, he's like, yeah, that's right. And so when we have him gassing these guys or gassing Jodie Foster in the room and Forrest Whitaker points out, that's not going to work. They're going to pass out. Jared Leto just bounces between the two of like, yeah, no, gas him out. Oh, wait, right. They'll pass out. Turn down the gas a little bit. Yeah. Even the first thing he says, because he's, he's sort of watching uh, Whitaker do this and he's not really getting it at first. And then once <laughs> he realizes he's taping the hose to, and it's important that Raul's already got it. Like Raul's helping him because mm-hmm. he understands what he's doing. And, you know, Junior's just looking like, what, what's going on? And when he eventually clicks, he goes, oh, yeah, I was just about to suggest something like this. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, sure you are, Junior. <laughs> Very good. Perfect. Yeah. So, he's going to make good middle management material one day. The, uh, well, no, he won't because he's dead. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, yeah, Jody Foster, obviously they're coughing. There's, like, a little, like, pipe to the outside, like a little filter uh, in the wall that goes to the exterior of the building. So... Kristen Stewart's like holding her face down there to breathe while this gas is coming in. Mm. Uh, Jodie Foster tries taping up the vents. That doesn't really work. And then she finds a lighter in one of the crates, one of the supplies. And she basically is like, well, put this fire blanket on you, kid. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to make them regret Say this. Lovey. And just as it's like about to happen, Forrest Whitaker kind of realizes. And the entire time, Jared Leto's got his head, his ears up against, because they're hearing some noises. They're hearing some clanking and stuff. It's like, what's that and he's moving his head around like i'm trying to listen to this what's going on uh and sure enough she now i don't know if the the physics the science of how this fire spreads is any way yeah. accurate i don't know uh, but you know it, it's, it's a good sp- visual it's a good visual it spreads fire obviously it goes all the way to the tank on the outside jared leto gets set on fire his face is burned and mm. he's you know freaking out and 
I'll just mention this here, but later on when they're discussing something else and they hear another noise coming from the panic room and one of them like goes up to try and listen, Jared Leto, and this is maybe the funniest thing he did in the whole movie to me, is he just goes, uh-huh. be careful. <laughs> like, yeah. like he's just so scared to go up against the wall now. <laughs> just a straight PTSD from that wall. Um, this sequence, like I said, I enjoyed it. I think it was a solid, like well thought out thing. They showed you all the steps and they showed you even how Jodie Foss responds to it. But this was, I think, one of the more egregious examples of it taking too long with fluff because, okay, she tries something first. It's duct tape over the vents. It doesn't work out. She needs another plan. I'm fine with that. But then when she comes up with the second plan, she gives the fire blanket to Kristen Stewart, takes the lighter, and instead of just lighting it, instead of just putting it, because the whole room is filled up with gas at the top at this point, she has to extend her arm the whole way down into the vent for some reason, and then click it like 12 times before it comes on. I understand that it's probably meant to build tension, but I'm already tensed out at that point. I know what's about to happen. And I'm just waiting for it to happen at that point. I think... Uh, now, again, I don't know if the science of this pans out. I think the idea was is she was trying to do it, like, reach out as far as possible to do it so that she had time before the fire reached her. She was, I think it was like a, you know, click and then duck <laughs> kind of thing. I guess, but I feel like it would have been much better to just, like, have it completely covering you, raise your arm up slightly, and yeah. then click it. Like, that would have been easier. I, honestly, I think this. <laughs> I get what you're saying, but it's, it's, it's like, it is only like 30 extra seconds. I, I, I never felt oh, yeah. like a hindrance to me. No, no, that's what I'm saying. Sometimes it's longer, sometimes it's shorter. This is on one of the shorter sides, but it just felt so egregiously obvious to me that it's like, okay, we, get, we know what's going to happen here. It's not a matter of you're building up tension anymore. It's just us waiting for the bomb to drop. I mean, I think it crescendos at a fine pace. This is the weird thing. You right, can keep, right. you know, That's I feel fair. like this particular just, critique is just, if you keep bringing this up, it's just going to keep ending the same way, which is, here's the, thing. Know, here's the pacing the, to me was fine. You could be like, nah, it was too long for me. Here's the thing. I don't want it to be a thing where I agree with you and have to say, like, I like everything that you like the whole way through. And then at the end of the movie, I come out three points lower for some reason. Like, I, <laughs> what I... When I have my issues, I want to point them out and say, here's why I have an issue with this. Oh, no, absolutely. I, I just think, at this point, like, I, I think you've explained the the, right, the, the core right. thing enough that you can just quickly shorthand apply it to things now. I don't want to... a single comment saying how I should have not given it such a low score from this point on, <laughs> unless you just completely disagree with me in my concept. I mean, it depends how low you go. If you give it like a 3 out of 10, I think people have got a right to be like, wait a minute. <laughs> no, it's not getting that high at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, um, so yeah, the next thing is that Jodie Foster realizes that if they can find the main phone line in the wall, they can like hook it up to the phone that's in there. Mm. Um, and she doesn't really know what she's doing, but they're all color coded. So whatever, I, I'll oh. buy that she could figure it out. Actually, I think there's like two little mini things in the between here. Is there a kick on? Yeah. So the first one is we because she looked outside this pipe that leads out into the outside world. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kristen Stewart finds a flashlight and is determined to signal SOS to the neighbors across yeah, the yeah. street. I actually really like this and that I appreciated that the guy just didn't get it and closed these curtains because most people won't get this. Most people won't know. Mm. I appreciate that. I. 
I appreciated it as well of that song because they even make the point of like, let's hope this guy was in Boy Scouts. Like, <laughs> I, I appreciate the fact that he didn't get it. But I also really hated the way that they did it was that they kept flashing the light right up until he actually got to the window. And then they thought that shouting in the middle of this thunderstorm across the street was going to save them. Yeah, through this like three inch metal pipe. Right. Yeah. I was like, no, keep flashing the light. What are you doing? I do so. love that it's raining outside the entire night, though. It's uh, good for atmosphere. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm digging that. I yeah, no. I mean, I like the scene. Um, I I can concede that point. They, they, they should have just kept flashing the light because, like, at least he's seeing something there, uh, mm-hmm. as opposed to hearing nothing. Although later on, it sounds like he did hear something. Maybe just garbled or didn't quite get what it was. Yeah. Um, and then the second thing that happened in between, which actually leads right into the phone line, is. They are watching the cameras. They realize that all of the people have moved away from the panic room. And so she goes out and she tries to get herself right, out. Right, 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 right. Yeah, mm-hmm. so... Yeah, basically she's like, oh, my cell phone was next to my bed. And if they're, like, far enough away... And I actually I do like the tension here because she's about to do it. And Forrest Whitaker's actually standing in a dead zone where he's actually just at the door of the room. But the cameras mm-hmm. just don't see him there. And... She's almost about to go, and then, like, he steps forward, and Christian says, no, 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 wait, 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 and then he goes down to talk, because th- this is the part of the movie where um, Raul wants to talk to Jared Leto, and it's basically like, hey, we're not talking with that other guy, we're talking between us, because this is, I want an equal share, I want a million dollars, because this is when he's still claiming three million. So yeah. it becomes this thing where he's, he's starting to, like, oust Forrest Whitaker, because he doesn't like how sympathetic he's being, he's, like, mm-hmm. he's starting to see him as, like, an obstacle. Yeah. And Forrest Whitaker, is, he gets involved in the conversation and that's when he goes down the stairs. But mm-hmm. I love that this entire like 10 sequence is played in silence yeah. because the sound goes away as soon as the door opens and she runs out to like try and get her phone. She's trying to find it and it's under the bed. And as she's reaching for it, she knocks over the lamp. And I love that as soon as that happens, you don't hear it. You just like see their reactions in mm-hmm. real, well, not even real time, it's slow, slow motion. You see the reactions where they turn and start going up the stairs and it's this build to get her back into the, the panic room. Um, mm-hmm. But of course, what she didn't realize is that this 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 panic room completely kills phone signals because it's thick steel, which yeah. sounds reasonable enough, to be honest. <laughs> I agree. I think that it's fine. I do think there should have been like the smallest bit of signal when she finally wises up and holds it right next to the outside area. Yeah. But I'm willing to accept it is just that powerful. That seems fine to me. Yeah, I, I mean, she could maybe text holding it out that way. <laughs> like, text yeah. the husband or something. Like, hey. I, when I first got a cell phone, I grew up in an like absolute dead zone. So what I had to do every day when I got home from school was I broke apart the remote control to an RC car, snapped the antenna off of it, and duct taped it to the back of my phone to get just two bars of service so that I could communicate with the outside world. If I could do that, she could get a bar here. That's such a weird part of David lore that we've just found out. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but we had the phone line thing, and basically, Forrest Whitaker kind of starts to like, wait a minute, when I asked you to cut the phone line, and of course it was Jared Leto's character, when I <laughs> asked you to cut the phone line, did you go down to the basement and cut the, the main phone line, or did you just cut the phone line going to the phone in the kitchen? Um, and he's like, uh, and it's like he's too embarrassed to admit that he just did the line in the kitchen. He doesn't want to see it, but yeah. it's clear that's what he did because he's he's too nervous to actually say it out loud. 
Um, but what's funny is that... Uh, can I, can I, oh, yeah. I just... I had this beautiful idea as I was watching it. I kind of wanted him to say, like, I couldn't cut the cord in the kitchen. It was wireless. Like, I just wanted him <laughs> to be, like, that extra level of stupid. No, no, it doesn't go that far, luckily. Yeah. But uh, basically, the Ethernet port's there, right, on the wall. Mm-hmm. So he, he rips that off. But the, the, the cable, the exposed cable's still dangling there because it's not been hooked up. And he's like, oh, it's fine, we're okay. But mm-hmm. just as he does that, Jodie Foster, like, yanks the cable so they see it suck into the wall and they start panicking. They have to run down to try and, like, cut the phone line before she can call anyone. Yeah, because Jodie Foster, they ripped the phone that was in the panic room off the wall and they're planning on splicing it in. Yeah. So that they can use that to call out. Which they do. The police put them on hold. Which, like, what? That's the part that bugged me the most. She's like, 911, and she immediately starts giving her information and says, please hold. And I'm like, why? Why would you ever put someone on hold after they are giving their information like that? Yeah, here's the thing, right? So, obviously, there is a police station phone number locally everywhere that may put you on hold because it's not an emergency number. It's just to phone the police, right? right? Mm -hmm. But 911, the entire effing point... Of nine one one is that it's an emergency. <laughs> yeah, and like, don't get me wrong. I've heard about horrible nine one one operators. I've heard mm. horror stories of them like just hanging up or doing awful things. That's not this operator. This seems like it was just a thing that happens, and they just are like, oh yeah, you know, nine one one putting me on hold. Yeah, just any other Tuesday. So she she then instead phones her ex husband. And gets the mm. Nicole Kidman wife on yeah. the phone, who is basically just like, uh, oh, it's your ex-wife. I, this is actually <laughs> one of her great little character beats where she's talking to the thing and she, yeah. she, Nicole Kidman's not handing over the phone, just saying like, what do you want? And she just stands up for herself. It's like, put him on the phone, bitch. Yeah. And it's like, all right, good job. It's a, yeah, it's, it's a little self-assertion moment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and she only gets out half a sentence because basically Forrest Whitaker's trying to find the actual line in the basement and he's tra- having trouble getting to it. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Raul just grabs the axe or sledgehammer and just smashes mm-hmm. the entire thing. So it goes yeah. dead. Uh, but we obviously I, we find out soon that it was enough to make him think, oh, what's going yeah. on? Something's weird. He's, she she got off the words, there are three, and then the line goes dead. Yeah. So um, I do think this movie, now that I'm thinking about it, does a great job of giving us everything we need in the first like act of the movie Mm. and then never introduces anything new after that. I mean, obviously not in terms of characters, we'll get a few more characters, but like this entire movie, we have the panic room, we have this building, we have one gun and we have the sledgehammer and that's really it. That's all you need this entire time. Yeah. It even establishes uh, the syringes that the daughter has for her blood sugar. Uh, in the little mm-hmm. fridge, and that comes up obviously quite a bit in the second half. Yeah. Um. So it's after this though where Jared Leto's character Junior basically says, "You know what? This is too much effort. I'm giving up. Uh, I'll just inherit. I'll put in a call and inherit it." And they're like, "Wait a minute. This is more money than you were saying, you little shit." And when he <laughs> tries to leave. Uh, Raul just pulls out his gun and shoots him in the head. And it is quite a shift because up until this point, no one's actually gotten hurt. Not when, yeah. Okay, Jared Leto got burned a little bit, but that wasn't like a Nobody attack. important has actually gotten <laughs> hurt. But he gets shot in the head, and obviously this is not something that Forrest Whitaker wants to be a part of. He's like, wait, there's, this is murder now. Like, what's, what's going on here? 
Um, mm-hmm. And Kristen Stewart sees it on the camera. And, you know, in fact, it's after this because all throughout the stuff in the panic room, Jodie Foster keeps saying, hey, how's your blood sugar? You know, she's looking at yeah. a little watch thing that tells her. And it's not too long after this where understandably her blood sugar <laughs> is starting to struggle because yeah. she's it's quite tense. You know, it's a tense night for her, right? Yeah, you'd be burning through a bit, just a tiny bit. So she starts to obviously react to that and she's starting to get sleepy and she might go into a coma and it mm-hmm. becomes this thing where shit, she needs her medication, which is in the fridge. And again, the geography has been well set out. That was next to her bed, which means it's upstairs. Mm-hmm. So it becomes this... Uh, this decision at a certain point where Jodie Foster is going to have to make that trip. She's going to have to try and save her daughter. But before we get to that, once Jared Leto is shot, a Mm -hmm. new character shows up in the doorway and we are introduced to the husband. The ex-husband, yeah. Uh, Who immediately, Raul just like starts, you know, grabbing and punching and kicking the shit Mm -hmm. out of him uh, and demanding to know if he's like called the police or anything, to which he says no. Uh, turns out that was a lie because the police show up uh, yeah. to say that they were, they were called. But um, this becomes a thing it's like where he wants to just beat the shit out of the husband to try and make her come out. So they're doing it in front mm-hmm. of the camera. And Forrest Whitaker doesn't like this, but he's just holding up his hands and saying, look, look, this will stop if you just you know, come out. Like, yeah. pl- just please. Like, please come out. I don't want this to keep going. Yeah. But obviously doesn't say this till later um, mm-hmm. when... Raul says that, uh, you know, the girl's seen my face. But Raul's got a line later where he says, the price for one is the same as the price for many. Uh, Basically meaning, if he's going to get caught for murder, it doesn't matter how many he's murdered, really. Like, he's going to go away or get killed for it, regardless. So, whatever. Um, So that just gives you a, a, a little insight into his mind and into where his logic lies. So he's just ready to kill everyone. Um, yep. But, but it's at this point, Forrest Whitaker comes up with a actually really, really smart plan to kind of bait them out. So yes. during the fight scene where they're kicking the crap out of the divorced father, um, one of the cameras is covered up. They cover up the camera so they're unable to see him getting beat up. And then the next thing we, that they see on the cameras is that Forrest Whitaker is dragging the body of Raul downstairs, seemingly knocking him out after he put up too much of... Like, he, he kicked the crap out of the dad too much. So, with both of the men downstairs now, this is Jodie Foster's opportunity to go out to the fridge and finally do it. Yeah. And when she leaves Tur- the panic room, yeah, like, it Tur- looks like the ex-husband's lying there on mm-hmm. the bed, face down. Like, he's maybe dead, or at the very least, he's unconscious. Yep. But she has no time to check, so she goes up, gets the syringes, and starts to come back. But it turns out that when they covered up the cameras, they just had Raul and the father switch clothes. And Raul's actually the one who was standing right there waiting. Yeah. The and he get he gets up and goes into the panic room. Forrest Whitaker goes in. And this is what's really smart. And this is why, like, when you were critiquing the third act earlier, I mm. was getting ready. Like, I do think there's a couple things at the very end that I think maybe aren't perfect, but... That's I think more of what I'm yeah, talking about. Because yeah. I think the flip, where now Jodie Foster's outside the panic room, because she basically throws in the medication as the door's shutting and yep. then just pleads with them to give her the shot. And Forrest Whitaker, of course, is a good person at heart. 
he does want to mm-hmm. do it and he does right it's he, he, you know he gets Kristen straight to talk him through it all that stuff there, there there's this whole thing where now she has the gun as yes. well so she he's telling him like the only way i'm going to be able to do that oh and also raul's fingers got stuck in the door because oops turns out two lasers isn't enough well, yeah, because um, his hands in the middle part. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which, to, so, to be fair though, he's been the evil prick the whole movie. So this is oh, cathartic yeah, no. for the audience. You're like, enjoying this. He deserves it two hundred percent, no doubt. Absolutely. But it's it's one of these things where everything lines up perfectly. Of they want her to leave, like get away with the gun. They need to open the door to free this guy's hand, and Kristen Stewart needs to get the shot. So everybody has something they want from each other and it just is can we manage to negotiate this little three-way deal here yeah and they make her go and stand at the bottom of the stairs whilst mm-hmm. they open the door to let you know get Raul's hand back in uh yep. but it's a really it's a great flip of the setup because the whole movie the for the first two acts the movie's been you know jodie foster and her daughter in the panic room and the others try to get in but now mm-hmm. we have it flipped, where now Jodie Foster's on the outside in the house. She's got the gun. She's got the sledgehammer. She has everything. But they're in the room with her daughter. So all of a sudden, and I think this actually kind of extends to like, you know, I mean, they never really talk, I think, too much in the movie about the idea that maybe she could have lost her daughter in the divorce. But I do think this idea of her now being separated and having to trust that someone else is going to look after her maybe like kind of goes into that fear a little bit that, you know? Yeah. I, I see what you're saying. I think it comes down more to she feels completely alone post-divorce. She feels abandoned and such mm-hmm. like that, and her okay. daughter is the only one she has left, and losing that would be just losing everything. Just this idea that she's cut off from her kind of thing yeah. was, was going mm-hmm. through my mind. But reg- regardless, uh, she starts going around the... Well, actually, did the police come first? Maybe they come first, because the cameras yeah, the are all still come there. police first, yeah. yeah. So they're able to see on the cameras there are police standing outside, and obviously Jodie Foster didn't call them. It's revealed that the husband did. And so they basically say, get rid of the cops, or we're going to kill your daughter. Like, uh, if the cops well, enter in the door, You say we, dead. let's just specify, Raul said this. Yeah. Forrest Whitaker ain't saying that. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. Forrest Whitaker's busy trying to break open a safe. Yeah. But, uh, so, we're, so yeah, Jodie Foster just sort of puts her hands up to the camera to say, hey, hey, I'm going to deal with it. Like, I'm not going to, like... And so so the cop, like, you know, he's like, hey, we received this call from your ex-husband. And at this point, they just mentioned it's four in the morning, right? So we're mm-hmm. in the middle of the night now. And she's been all tired, and she's she's pretending like everything's okay. Um, and she has to come up with this reason why she called her husband. And she says, oh, the end of the set... Because he's like, what was the rest of the sentence? He said, you know, there's three things and she's like yeah. oh it was going to be these are the three things i'll do for you if you come right now over and get in bed with me right yeah and it's it's just this awkward bit of like uncomfortable humor almost um mm. but i do like that the cops like hey if you like were in trouble but you couldn't say it out loud mm-hmm. for some reason you could signal you know maybe blink a lot or something right now that might be safe to do. Mm. And I I think what I like about this moment is that I think in her head, she's actually cons- like, should I? Like, is this the right call? Yeah. Like, because she knows they're mm-hmm. in the panic room with her daughter. And even if the police do start helping her, like, her daughter may just be dead at this point because, you know, Raul may kill her just out of spite, even if they eventually have to come out and get arrested. So yeah. this is a choice she has to make in the moment. Do I try and get help because I'm in this situation that obviously needs help? Or do I have to deal with this on my own because ultimately the, the circumstances are just like... Because it's exactly what the circumstances they were that the villains were in before, where they're in the panic room 
and they can only choose to come out, right? Yeah. So she's in this predicament. I I, I don't know. What did you think of this no, whole scene? No, I I this is right up before that point where the cop like presses her saying hey you can give a hidden signal i thought the scene was dragging i thought it was just taking a really long time because we we know mm. that it's going to end with the cops walking away i i don't think there's any doubt in the audience's mind like clearly the cops are not going to come in right now and just bust down the door but as soon as he offers up that option as soon as he says hey you can give a little hidden thing you come to realize like well there's no audio on these cameras. No. They they aren't able to see her mouth there. Maybe she's not aware of that, but she could pass along a message here, and that could change the trajectory of things. So I thought that that was very well done. Like you said, you could see her struggling with the, the idea of it. Like, is it safe to tell them that? Can I give them some sort of warning here to let them know something's going on? But then ultimately she comes to the conclusion of, they can't do anything to help me right now. If they yeah. come in this house, she's dead. So I have to just do this alone. And I do think that's kind of, as you were saying, the transition of her becoming passive to active. Yeah. That's where she finally makes that final leap of, I could just take the easy way out here and say, yes, please come in. Horrible yeah, things are it, happening. It's basically her, in a really dramatic way, obviously, but it's really basically her transitioning from being what she was before into being a single parent like she's now right. the single parent who's going to take care of her kid on her own and it's mm-hmm. a movie so everything's heightened to extreme but that's oh, yeah. the idea of it um so she comes back in she's dealt with that um and clearly the, the cop like because obviously the show back up later it's clear that he still got the impression something was up like something wasn't mm-hmm. quite right here and obviously later on those gunshots fired or whatever uh yeah you know because they even mentioned oh, a neighbor said there was some yelling or something you know coming mm-hmm. uh but yeah she goes around the house and starts knocking out the cameras with a sledgehammer and i actually got a, a little chuckle here because uh but Raul looks at them and goes wait why didn't we do that <laughs> i feel like that line in an original draft was meant for jared leto and then they changed it so he was dead at this point they're like but it's too good of a line we yeah. can't toss it well I, I think it's the idea that you're kind of like bringing Raul down because we've seen his face and he does you know he's got a That's good true. creepy look when we first see him without the mask he feels very intimidating mm-hmm. but between the hand and then this to make him look a bit like an idiot and Honestly, like, in my head, I'm like, you know what, to be fair, I don't think it mattered that much if that she could see you. I mean, maybe, yeah, you could have done some sneaky shit like she's doing now, but yeah, it's not like it really affected your goal or what you were trying to do, right? Like, they couldn't really mm-hmm. do anything to counteract what you were doing on the outside. So, you know, that's why it never maybe came up. But yeah. it, I just, it is a fun little moment of him being like, yeah, why didn't we, like, take away her sight of, like, the rest of the house? because mm. uh, then she wouldn't have been able to time things like running out to grab something yeah. or she wouldn't be able to leave the room twice without us noticing yeah uh but yeah so yeah the forest worker gets into the safe but he, he helps kristen Stewart. he gives her a shot uh mm. and she thanks him right um and the whole movie he's been very reasonable he clearly doesn't want to hurt anyone um and when all this goes down uh, so Jodie Foster has g- given the gun to her ex-husband, who's still alive, right? But he's kind of like injured; his arm's broken, and she's yep. taped the gun to his hand and like sort of propped it up on like a lamp post, so mm-hmm. that he he can basically just like fire in one spot, right at the bottom of the stairs. She's basically laying, as you say, a kind of a Home Alone esque trap. Yeah. Uh, and when they do come out of the the panic room and they come mm-hmm. down, Raoul. Is, is got the girl and Forrest Whitaker steps out first and it's notable that 
you know, Kristen shouts, shouts, don't shoot him, Dad. Like, she, she's like sort of yeah. like trying to protect Forrest Whitaker here. Well, well, even before we get to that point, um, it's per, the, the way she was going around the room, she was knocking out the cameras, but she also was going around with the key to all the doors. Mm. And she was purposely structuring, like, closing and locking doors so that these guys had to take one very specific path yeah. downstairs. Oh, yeah, because this happened earlier when she was out getting the medication. There was a tense moment because. There was like two entrances into the room of the panic room. There's one from the main hall, and then there's one like mm-hmm. through the bathroom that connects to another bedroom. Yep. And you see Raul waiting with the gun behind the door, like he might just shoot her on the head if she gets like you know close to. If she him. comes around the wrong way. Yeah. yeah. But she like basically has to rush him through the door. But there's a great shot where you can see down basically both hallways at the same time, and mm-hmm. like she's coming down the other one that he's not at, like guarding the door on. And so it's it's a good moment yeah. but yeah this is part of the geography that it plays with here where she is basically directing them through a specific route so they'll have to come out in front of where the guy's holding the gun yep um so it's you know it, it's very effective in that case mm-hmm. um, and we also see at this point that she is very clearly hiding in the elevator yeah so. yeah uh and she comes out and helps of course when Rill goes to fight uh the the ex-husband mm-hmm. and so the fight breaks out, and the the big dramatic thing here, of course, is that Forrest Whitaker could get away scot-free, but he chooses to go back and save Jodie Foster because Rylo's going to kill her, right? He's got yeah. the sledgehammer, he's go- he's going to bash her head in, and he comes... I think he's choking her specifically by the time Forrest Whitaker comes in and shoots him. He, he's he got her down on the ground, like, dazed and confused, and she's a, he's about to drop the sledgehammer on her mm. head, more or less. And he shoots, um, he shoots him in the head, and that's kind of your big dramatic, like... And, you know, this is the kind of arc that I think you see coming from the start. He's always been this sympathetic character who doesn't want to yeah. hurt innocent people. And he makes this choice here to save them. And it leads to him getting arrested, because he, he can't get away in time. You know, he gets caught mm-hmm. like in the, the back of the house. Yeah, the cops basically come in one second after everything is done, and they start swarming the house, and he's just still in the backyard. He's trying to get away. And the whole thing is that the money is in the form of bearer bonds. Yeah. So it's it's just a whole bunch of pieces, like sheets of paper. And so he has to raise his hands up, and they're like, oh, let go of whatever you're holding. And because it's raining, because it's storming, this $22 million that he has spent the whole night trying to get just go off into the wind. He I guess it's like a it. it's like a morality lesson for him. Like you know, even though it's not fair that things didn't work out the way they should have, and you're struggling to you know pay for your family or whatever, mm-hmm. like making this choice ultimately, you've learned that it was never yeah. worth it. You know, this this movie is very much of the levels of punishment for different crimes. Like it's not one of those absolutist things of if you're a criminal, you get punished the same way no matter what. It's saying no, Raúl was a far worse person than uh, Forrest Whitaker's was, and so he got punished significantly harder yeah. than Forrest Whitaker does. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it, it is still showing that you do bad things, you will get punished, but not, you know, it's proportional. Yeah, Jared Leto's in the middle. You could even argue the ex-husband for dumping his wife for a younger woman. Uh, yeah. That's why he gets beat up. <laughs> that's why he's then, in, he doesn't die, of course, but he is yeah. pretty in bad shape by the end. Yeah, pretty much. So there is one thing in this third act like bit that I did want to cover because it's not about padding. It's genuinely a structural issue, I feel. Sure. And that is, so they come around this corner and the father is pretending to still be capable of at least moving his arm. And so he says, hey, you know, let the girl go and 
or else I'm going to shoot you. And Forrest Whitaker's trying to reason it out, like, yeah, no, that's fine. We'll let her go. You'll never see us again. Bye. But obviously they don't believe them because they Raul's a murderer at this point. So it, while they're being threatened with the gun, Jodie Foster sneaks out from the elevator behind them and attacks Raul with the sledgehammer. She hits him in the face with it, full swing. He then topples over the railing and falls down a full story to the floor below. Mm -hmm. 30 seconds later, he gets up and just comes to attack them some more. Maybe that's just me. That feels like he's just Superman at that point. No, I think that's a fair complaint. I did think when he gets hit in the face with a sledgehammer that he should probably, if not dead, he should be lying, coughing up blood and like, you know, unable yeah. to stand up. Yeah. He, de he definitely should not be capable enough to not only climb up a flight of stairs, but then also manage to take out Jodie Foster, get stabbed a few times by Kristen Stewart, who brought along her needles from her EpiPen case. Yeah. And then also manage to lift the sledgehammer up and is about to drop it on Jodie Foster again. All of that just seems far beyond his capabilities of sledgehammer over the railing to the floor below. No, I think that's fair. I think this is like your Hollywood movie, just like, oh, the killer has to come back for one last thing, yeah. basically. That, that's effectively what it's doing. Um, and to be fair, if you, if you accept it on the terms of this is a popcorn thriller, as opposed to, right. you know something else which i th I you know i think it, it is that you it is it's hollywood suspense it's you know setting up rules but it's a very good example i think of setting up the rules playing with the geography mm. uh playing with characters having the, the the various degrees of villain like you say if anything i would have almost liked just because forrest whitaker does feel like he like i feel like he earns so much like clout with the audience mm -hmm. that it would have been nice to at least uh see that Oh, because Kristen Stewart and like Jodie Foster maybe speak on his behalf at the yes. maybe, maybe a trial or something. He gets. I said I said that exact yeah. thing to my girlfriend after it was done. Yeah. I felt there was no wrapping up of Forrest Whitaker's plot. I, no, the I last think we see of him is hands up in the rain. I think this is fair because, like, like you say, the the moral kind of thing of the karma of like he doesn't get the money. That's fine, but mm -hmm. it does feel like he's deserved a light punishment versus the other two. Like, yeah. obviously he's going to get in trouble and he should, but. The fact that he was going out of his way to save the victims, you would mm -hmm. think would, you know, at least get him some, like, nice yeah. goodwill. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm pretty sure that because he killed someone, that he's, mm. no matter what, going to be on charge for manslaughter. But I would have liked to see, like, no, you know, he, he wasn't good, but we're not going to press charges on, like, the more violent things. Well, maybe, like, breaking and entering. That's all that's we're going to care about sort of yeah. thing. But no, in, in the end, we get no resolution, positive or negative for him. Yeah. It's just left up to whatever. I think we, we can, like, like we can, we can assume maybe that, yeah, they mm -hmm. speak on his behalf. They, they get whatever punishment he's going to have, like, you know, cut down as much as it can be, you know, whatever. I would like yeah. to think they do. I don't know. But, like, we, we never get, get it either one way or the other. So, right. uh, it would yeah. be nice to have that. And like I said earlier, the final scene is we're in daylight again, and it's uh, just, you know, mom and daughter sitting on a park bench looking at the uh, vacant apartments and houses in the city. Where do we yep. go to live? And that's uh, that's how the movie ends. It ends with them yep. looking forward to their positive future. So, Which, I, I don't hear... I think back to our talking about Seven, 
which mm-hmm. if you haven't seen seven, I am going to like fully spoil seven. All right, spoiler, um, spoiler I'll just, I'll just, just to give people I'll, a chance to turn this off. I will put my hand down when I'm done spoiling seven. <laughs> right. But at the very end of seven, like everything builds up, everything happens and Kevin Spacey gets shot. Brad Pitt goes full psycho. And then the movie is done maybe 30 seconds later. Like it's very it is, quick, yeah. It's barely any day in It's just done. This movie... I guess I'm done there. This movie has the same sort of thing where it is done very quickly after this thing is done, but it doesn't have that same sort of feeling of closure to me. It doesn't feel no. like it's wrapped up the same way as Seven, you know? I mean, it's not... I don't think it's a controversial statement to say that Seven is a better movie than Panic Room, because it is... <laughs> That's right. uh, but you know yeah that builds up so when it makes its final point you don't need to say anything else whereas this it feels like oh because it didn't have like a, a key point that it was trying to like build up to it, it could use a little bit of a coda almost for like mm-hmm. surviving characters um but you know I, I don't think it affects it too much because it is mostly about the thrills it's mostly about the excitement of the, the the one night in the house when there's good guys and bad guys and the sneaking mm-hmm. around and all that stuff and i think on all those fronts it is a really fun movie yeah. um which you know isn't this i don't necessarily think of fun when i think of david fincher but i do think this is a fun movie mm-hmm. uh no so. i could even especially with the fact that every time that it um like is done with the sequence it does a full fade out to black and then comes back to show time is passing. I could easily see this airing on like TNT or something mm. at like five o'clock. Like it's that kind of movie where it's not too heavy. It's not too like super artistic or you need to really know all of this backstory lore. You just tune in and then, yeah, you could stick commercials in the middle of it and you'd still be fine. Yeah. And the craft is really strong. Um, mm. Barring, you know, again, maybe the CG transitions or whatever, but the actual presentation of the information, how the tension's built up. You had some problems, of course, with the pacing of some of the tension, thinking it went on a bit too yeah. long in places. But, you know, I think by and large, it's a really solid, fun bottle movie thriller. And yeah. I have a good time. I liked it back then. I like it now. So right. uh, I guess with all that said, we should rate Panic Room. David, what are you giving it? Uh, for me, I've, again, I, I liked everything in the first two acts and even the entirety of like the third act up until the last five minutes not even the last two minutes where Mm -hmm. it's just it felt like i got no resolution on a bunch of things that i really needed resolution on and then as i have said numerous times the pacing in certain parts was off for me but i love the concept i think it does it very smart i think it's written very well there are funny moments tense moments they all play off each other well Overall, I would probably say if I got a better resolution at the end, I would give it an extra point, maybe point and a half. But I'm going to come down on this with just a... I'm going to say just like a flat seven. I, I, I can't really realistically give it any higher than that. So, yeah, that's yes. fair. Uh, that's that's kind of where I was thinking you were going, just based on what you were mm. saying on the build up there. Um, I think for me, it is definitely a bit stronger than that. And... You know, I am in the the minority of people, and I realize it is a very minor, minor minority <laughs> that thinks this is a better watch than Fight Club. But um, yeah, for for me, I think I think uh, it's probably a flat eight for me. I, I think okay. it's 
you know, I don't think it's amazing. I don't think it's into, like, you know, special territory, but I think it's a really solid, good example of what it's doing. And I always have an, ent- an entertaining time when I'm watching it. So, uh, 8 out of 10. For me. Okay. But that does bring us to our special rating scale. Does this movie make the cut? Um, I think so. I think it makes the cut because I think 7 is good. I think 8 is great. I think that puts us comfortably into... Yeah, it makes the cut. Does, doesn't go a cut above. Doesn't, you know, go into special territory. But... I, I agree. Rating-wise, it seems like it should go there. But I also don't really feel like I have any drive to ever watch this again. I don't feel like it's something that I... If I was going out and making a David Fincher collection that I'd be like, yep, I have to have my panic room. I feel like it is kind of just a forgettable film overall. So I would say cutting it close. I think it's up for the interpretation. I think it's, you know, there are people like you who thinks it it's great, but I also think that it's not anywhere near the ubiquity of something like Fight Club, mm. which, to be fair, you put in cutting it close as well. Oh, I did? I stand by yes. that. Mm-hmm. But I rated no, you, that much lower than you rated you this. You wanted it to go and not making the cut at all, and we compromised. <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> I'm saying that this is the much more defined of cutting it close just by default. I mean, I will concede I will pick my battles elsewhere. I mean, okay. I, I, I think it... I think it comfortably just lands in a nice good place where it's it's it does make the cut, but... I I think there's more interesting fights to be had later on that I will not back down on. <laughs> so I will definitively put Benjamin Button as a cut above. The jugular, <laughs> maybe. Uh, uh, so, right, so cutting it close, we're going with that. I'll I'll agree to. Uh, it's it's, it's, right. it's in minor protest though. I'll just That's fine. I had yeah. major protests with the last one, so you're allowed to have your minor protests. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, so yeah, coming up next time we have Zodiac, mm. uh, which tends to get a lot of praise, a lot of buzz. So we'll see how we feel about it uh, yep. when we get to it next time. Um, time to do some promotions here. If you want more shows, more episodes, you can go over to Patreon.com/MailPlusTV and. Uh, the regular bonus episode is coming to an end in a couple of months and will be replaced by the Criterion Cut. Yes. The monthly show where we do Criterion movies. Um, that That is a public show for now, but will become the Patreon bonus uh, in November, December time. Uh, mm-hmm. But this month did have a bonus episode and that was the game, as I mentioned earlier, one of Fincher's movies to tie in with the rest. Um, and also we have, of course, Extra Reels, which is our $5 and up bonus show where we do a very, very bad movie. It's the opposite of the Criterion show, basically. Uh, this month, we did, or are doing, depending on when this goes out, uh, we did Steven Seagal's directorial feature on Deadly Ground. So if that sounds like something you want to hear us rant, rave, complain, and go a little bit crazy over, mm-hmm. you can get that for $5 or more over at Patreon. So uh, go check out that. Uh, but yeah. Otherwise, though, uh, if you just hit the like button and stuff on YouTube, that does help it a lot. It helps people find the channel, helps people mm-hmm. find the reviews, uh, and the more people, the better for everyone involved. So go and <laughs> go and do that. But that's the show. That is Collector's Cut. Thank you very much for joining. We appreciate it. Keep watching the movies. And uh, 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 Kristen Stewart likes pizza. Pizza.